All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight, if you want to turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that's where we'll be tonight. 2 Corinthians 10. Really good harvest party. I think it went really well. Smaller crowd. Don't know why. Probably didn't advertise it as much, but um, just thank you for everybody that helped out and was able to stand and do their part and just made it easy for all the kids. And um, I think they really had a good time. I know my kids were wore out. They wanted to sleep in the next day. And so mission accomplished. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word as we have sung and worshiped you. And we're halfway through our week and um, the work week anyway. We pray that you'd refresh us tonight. Encourage us by your word. As Aaron prayed, give us direction um, and teach us things that we haven't seen before. That's why we study your word, to draw closer to you, to understand you better, to understand our faith, our walk with you. We just pray that you bless it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul shares with the Corinthians here in chapter 10, a spiritual war. Um, for, for Paul, it's always been difficult for him to get people to take him seriously. I think that's why... Maybe when he was hunting Stephen and hunting the church before he was saved, why he was so violent about it. Um, called little man syndrome, you know, a uh, little Napoleon action here. And I've run into several people like that, but, you know, since I'm so tall, it doesn't apply to me. But you do, you feel like you need to compensate sometimes for the lack of... Um, charisma that you carry with your stature. Um, I believe Paul was zealous for the Lord. I believe he loved him. You know, um, he wanted God's approval. He wanted to be pleasing to God. And all he knew was the law. He didn't know the spirit. He didn't have a relationship with the Lord in a personal way. He knew what he was taught. And so he tried to excel at the law, excel at the enforcement of the law. And so he was very good at that. Now, much like Peter, tough, big, rough fisherman, um, James and John, they were called sons of thunder for a reason. You know, when, when Peter writes in his epistles, he starts using the word precious a whole lot, which is not what you expect from a steel worker kind of guy or an oil rig kind of guy, a fisherman of the sea, of the ocean, you know. Because that's what Christ does. Christ comes in and he really does change us. The appearance of Peter was the same, same for James and John, but their countenance was different. They were, they were softened. Um, for Paul, that happened. As someone who tried to compensate for his small stature, um, he'd been touched by Jesus. And so when he would come and speak, although bold in speech about Jesus Christ, had such a tender heart for the people that came across. And sometimes it came across as weakness. Or at least that's how his opponents in the faith, can't believe we have to say that out loud, but there are opponents in the faith sometimes. His opponents took that as weakness and capitalized upon it because they probably had the big booming voice. They probably were six something, two, three, four. Head and shoulders above everybody else. And that's essentially what people would look for. People like that. They're drawn to that. They really are. There's a reason Hollywood actors are attractive, you know. It's because that's what we want to look at, and a lot of people want to look like. So the guys that had come into the Corinthian church, his opponents, after Paul had left, probably had that kind of authority, that ability to speak, that kind of power over the people because of their charisma and stature. Well, Paul writes some letters that has the stature of someone who's 6'6". And so they would make fun of him and say, well, he's such a bold man in letter. But when he shows up, you know, I mean, it's just Paul. Squinty-eyed, hook-nosed, small Jew boy, you know, kind of thing. So Paul writes this chapter here. And for a Wednesday night, it might be a little interesting. But it is important for our faith to understand that Paul had the authority to write a letter like this, to write this chapter. And that's what I learned when I studied it the first time, second, third, fourth time, is I'm always, I always appreciate that. 
when I read Paul's letters, I figure out what it looks like to be a pastor. I I understand what it looks like to be under an authority. Um, You you read these things and you figure it out. No one (laughs) probably looked at Paul and says, don't judge me, man. Because the way these letters are written, I mean, they're judgmental. He is looking at their faith. He is looking at their walk. He is examining their conduct, and he's correcting them. Nobody likes that. Unless they're humble, unless they're truly open to what God wants in their lives, and then they're open to it. So Paul finds himself having to write this. Now, we've toggled in this book, 2 Corinthians, between him being very, oh, I can't believe it. I'm so glad you received my letter to, and by the way, I'm still coming. And I think, you know, and I'm going to be rough when I come, which is basically what this is, because you still got two groups of people in the Corinthian church. The, The battle isn't over yet. He did have some receive the first letter with gladness and have changed and did their part. And that's probably the majority. Because in his first letter, he says, I need you to remove that guy from fellowship because he's doing sin and he won't repent of it. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And you can only do that if you have the majority of the group, you know. But you still have this minority that just isn't getting it. And I think that's what this chapter 10 is directed towards, that group. So in verse 1, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you, there's the weakness, beggar, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, Christ is all-powerful. He's God come in the flesh. And so when he decides to be meek, by choice, meek is power under control. At the cross, he did not have to go to the cross. He could have just blinked us out of existence and started over with a fresh batch of people, but he didn't. And that's meekness. That's a love constraining one from doing what they could do, but they don't do for the benefit of that person, for the love of that person. So Paul, when he says that, I am speaking to you and pleading with you, not from weakness, but from the meekness of Christ. So just like Christ at the cross decided to save us from our sins. I too am pleading with you, with the gentleness that's of Christ, who in presence, when I show up, when I'm in person, am lowly among you, but being absent, I am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So there it is. I am going to come, and I I don't want to have to be bold, but I intend to be bold for those that just look at me outwardly and don't consider the authority that God's given me. It's interesting. Um, In the church, and this is a, a general thing to teach, I think. It doesn't necessarily have to be this chapter. It could be anywhere. Um, the entire world is marching in a direction to the beat of Satan. Whether they know it or not, whether they admit it or not, the entire world marches to the beat of Satan. That's what they do. Now, I don't worship Satan. I don't love Satan. Nevertheless, your actions and the way you carry yourself is anti-Christ. You're opposed to the faith. You're opposed to Jesus and his drum and his way. So there are only two ways to march. You're either marching with Satan or you're marching with God. It's very, very clear. And so the entire world is marching to this beat. And when you get saved, when you become born again, you hear the beat of a different drummer. You hear God's beat and you change course, change direction, and now you're going against the flow. And most of us feel that every day. You watch something and you see something that's completely normal to the world and the world celebrates it and you look at it in horror. That's because you march to the beat of the Lord now, of righteousness, of of holiness. You're opposed to sin in your own life. You're opposed to sin every time you see it. You're not judging. You can't help it. It's what God hates you hate now. What, what, What causes God to cringe causes you to cringe. Okay? Well, in the Corinthian church and in every church, ours included, there, there seems to be some agreement that people come to in their own minds, maybe in their own soul, that I'm going to march this much with the Lord. And they still try to march to the beat of Satan. So they're marching to two different drummers. That's a divided heart. 
that's talked about in Scripture. You're walking with the Lord one day, you're walking with Satan the next day, and you toggle between these two for a very long time. It doesn't have to be that way, but we do. The Corinthian church has found themselves walking to the beat of the Lord. We, we do want Jesus, but you, you can't not love Paul and be marching to the beat of God. You can't. Paul's the one that he sent, that God sent to the Corinthian church. It's, 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 it's the same as uh, any of the kings that tried to usurp the authority of David, any of the sons, whether that was Absalom or, or any of us kids that tried to take, yeah, we're going to go to, we're going to go to temple and we're going to do our thing with God, but I, I just do not like David. Well, you can't have it. You can't have that. That's the one that God chose for you. And so Paul is trying to reestablish his authority, not because he's an egotist, not because he doesn't like the badge anymore or because they, he wants to be right or he's afraid that he doesn't have the, the power that he used to have. None of that matters to him. Paul is the best teacher for the Corinthian church, and he's desperately trying to get them to change course because the direction that they're headed now, remember, they were marching to the beat of Satan. Paul shows up, establishes the church. They've turned around. They're marching to the beat of the Lord now. Not Paul, but the Lord. But these new teachers have come in, and now the people are kind of stumbling and staggering as to which way they should go, and they are changing back to the beat of Satan under the guise of religion. It looks like they're religious, which was the problem and why Jesus came to begin with. And that's why he was upset with the Pharisees and the Sadducees is because they marched to the beat of religion, but to Satan and they were walking in the wrong direction. So Paul, because of love, is saying, look, I love you enough not to let you continue down that path. It's not about me. I don't care whether you like me, whether you love me, whether you hate me or whatever. You still need to listen to what I'm trying to teach you. And the direction that you're headed is the wrong direction. It's going to end in disaster. And he can see that. The Corinthian church is headed in the wrong direction. They're walking away from God. They're, they're doing what the nation of Israel has always done. And that is they start well with the Lord. Then they get complacent. They begin to get worldly. And they find themselves at the bottom in a valley and crying out for help from God again. He says, and you're headed in that direction. He's desperately trying to stop them from going there. So he has to write chapter 10 to them. You're not hearing the drumbeat of God anymore. You're not walking in the ways of faith, of holiness, of love, of compassion, of grace, of mercy. You're divided and many other things. So he says, I don't want to come to you with boldness. I would prefer you hear this letter and receive it with gladness so that when I come, we don't have to have any of these conversations. But I am prepared. In Ephesians chapter 6, well, I better wait, sorry. That's verse 6 is what I want to do. Go back to verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. He wants them to see spiritually and not fleshly, which is how we started the whole conversation tonight. They were looking at their appearance of the new teachers and all. And he says, I don't want you to do that. I want you to look uh, at the spirit, not carnally, uh, to, to, to change your spiritual transformation that's taken place. You being born again, having a new heart and a new mind and new eyes, and you're able to see everything spiritually now, you're now turning it into a fleshly thing. Um, worship can become like that. Singing to God can become like that. It's amazing how many songs have come out. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. Okay, that's great. But it also is a telling song that we've gotten away from God and it wasn't all about him, it was about something else. And oftentimes it's about us. The songs that we sing or were singing before that song was written, <laughs> that artist had gotten off track and admitted so by writing that song. They had made it about themselves. It's, it's a beat that I like. It's snappy. It's uplifting. It matches my mood today, you know. Um, I like the words. I, I, I like, 
The songs are meant to be sung to somebody, to the Lord, you know. The heart of worship is to sing out whatever song is before us, as long as it's sound, and that's why we have a worship pastor, you know, to make sure that the songs that we're singing are of God and not some weird doctrine or strange belief system. And we can sing these songs, but they're meant to be sung to God no matter what they are, whether I like them or not, whether the tune is pleasing to me or not, makes no difference. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, which is to sing out to the Lord. I mean, he must have liked the song. He gave that song to the songwriter, whoever wrote it. So although it may not be my genre, it's definitely God's genre. You know, I have specific tastes, things I would choose, but I've yet not to be, we got to get to that place where we can worship to any song, you know, otherwise it becomes fleshy. And that's just one aspect of church or of corporate worship. It can be the same in prayer. I don't know if you've ever been to a prayer meeting where it sounds like the person praying is praying to the people in the room, as opposed to the person, you know, in heaven. You know, instead of, instead of directing their prayers toward Jesus, they're, they're saying, oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help everybody in this room to figure out that I am an amazing person. You know, say, who are you talking to? You know, kind of thing. Nah, that's that pretty extreme. But you can, you can sense that. And that becomes all about us then, instead of about the Lord. You know? Studying the Word of God can be about us as well. It can change. I don't like that. That can't be me. That's talking about people that gossip. And I hate gossipers, that's for sure. You know, Judy gossips a lot. They said in undertones, hushed in a private room at church. <laughs> what? No, it's about us. The word of God is, is for us. It's a mirror. It's not a magnifying glass. It's meant to reflect us and show us, not to find others and their faults. So Paul writes this and says, our weapons are not weapons of flesh. Yes, if they were weapons of flesh, Paul's getting at, yeah, you probably could beat me up. You probably could take a sword and do whatever. You probably could wrestle me to the ground. I mean, it's happened so many times in my life, I can't imagine you couldn't do it also. Yes, if we're talking about fleshly appearances, fine. But if you're talking about looking at some old sorcerer and blinding him for a day because he was bothering you, that'd be me, Paul would say. If it means casting out a demon from some gal that won't leave us alone while we're trying to minister, and I turn around and say, enough, and and the demons flee... And we're talking about a whole other level of power here, aren't we? See, Paul was that kind of powerful person. And the power was not from Paul, and he admits it. It's from God. But that means that God's stamp of approval and anointing is upon him. And for these guys to say, and he's going to quote them here in this chapter, things about him that are disparaging, God is listening to that. And he's looking at them saying, are you really going to talk that way about my servant here? You don't think anybody's hearing you, but I am, God would say. So Paul says, I'm going to let you guys do what you do, but I want you to know that God casts down these things, these, these things that exalt themselves above the Lord. He hears and he's not happy and it's a dangerous place to be. He says, so regardless of whether that applies to us tonight or not, what we do here is get a glimpse into Paul's teaching on what it means to walk in a, in a Christian way. It's not about the look of everything or the tempo of everything. Like, oh, golly, he stumbled over verse 2. He said he, said he was going to go to his notes, and then he went off of his notes and went, he said, he got it. it's so awkward for me. It's so cringy. It's not about that. It's about spiritual things. What is, as we've all taken the time tonight to separate from the world and to come here of all places, you know, and to come together to worship, there's so much to be gained from tonight if we pay attention, if we hear what God has to say to us. There's a spiritual battle that's going on in our own lives. I don't know if I want to be here. How much longer is this going to be? I want to go... Pull that thought captive. 
hold it captive. I'm not going to let my mind go there while I'm sitting here. What a waste of time for me. If I'm going to be here for an hour and a half, I'm going to focus. I have a hard time focusing. I would love to just try some of the medication that's out there just to see what that would do for me. I am already 12 steps ahead of myself when I'm doing any task. It drives me crazy. Like right now, I want to be done and I want to go on and I'm already driving the trailer home in my mind and I have to pull myself back into the chapter right now. It's the craziest thing. Once in a while while I'm teaching you, I'm thinking about the lights on my trailer and I need to get, oh yeah, how am I going to drive that home? Wait, I'm still on chapter 10 here, verse what, six? I'm just going a mile a minute. I, I literally have to do what we're talking about here tonight while I'm teaching you tonight. I have to pull thoughts captive. Come back to the text, JD. You know, come back to the point. Come back to the thing. You know, it is a spiritual battle. My flesh wants me to go everywhere but where God wants me to go right now. And I have to continually give God the reins of my mind, of my heart, of my life. Paul is saying we need to wage war and don't let the flesh just rule. Un- It may win sometimes, but at least put up the fight. At least punch it a few times, even if you're going to fall. Punch it on the way down. I don't know. I'd rather you have victory, but punch it. Fight the flesh. I'm tired of fighting the flesh. Then hit it again. One more time, you know. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That's a weird way to put it. I'll do my best to interpret, right or wrong. You can throw this out. Paul is going slow with them, is what he's doing. I have a rebellious group of people in the Corinthian church. What do I do? Do I just surprise them and show up and start taking names? Or do I write them a letter, give them time to think about it, to work it out before I come? That's what he's doing. I'm hoping you all come into the obedience. I hope you all come into the obedience of the faith, you know, because I'm ready to come and punish disobedience. Punish disobedience? Pastor Paul is going to come and punish disobedience when he gets to the Corinthian church. What's that going to look like? I don't know. He never tells us. He never has to. They take him at his word because of his letters. But what would that have looked like? He wants them to come to that. And I have to know that. And you have to know that when we're ministering to people and sharing with people. I can toss up my hands and throw my head in the air so fast with people sometimes. It's like, you know what? Fine. You know what? You know what? Done. Have it your way. You don't want Jesus? Don't have Jesus. Enjoy hell. No, 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 no. Don't give up so quick. Don't give up so quick. Go slow. Give them time. Let them chew. Let them digest. Let them get to that place. There there may not be fruit. It may be that they choose to reject Jesus Christ. But I don't want to force them into a corner to where they, they will. You see? I have a problem with a lot of these guys that have street witnessing techniques that force people into a corner to either accept or reject Christ right there on the spot. I think that's very dangerous, and I don't think it's biblical. Now, they call it, and they sell them. They sell the programs, and they've got their own YouTube channels and everything else. I think it's very dangerous. I don't see it as an example. They call it the way, but I've read Jesus' way, and he does it lots of different ways with people. There are moments where you do speak to the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. And there are moments when you speak to Nicodemus and take a little more time and let him think about it, let him chew on it, let him come back to it. I think it's very dangerous to say, here's what you do, you drive them into a corner, they've got no way to go. Well, now you've got a rabid animal. Forgetting what John 3 tells us, that the people don't come to Jesus Christ because they love their sin, not because they don't understand it or because you, you, you haven't convinced them that there is sin. They know full well the Holy Spirit convicts them of their need for Jesus Christ. They're fighting it. Of course they know. And if they don't want Jesus Christ right then, and you push them into a corner to where they have no other choice but to fight, that's probably what they'll do a lot of times. Now, some don't. Some surrender. 
But they surrender because they've been beaten, not because they've, they've accepted. It's different. There's a difference. Paul here says, I'm ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. I'm waiting for it to to come to fruition, to bear some fruit, to get some maturity here. I appreciate that about him. I learned that tonight. I hope we learn that tonight. Paul isn't writing anybody off. He's letting them know their error. I'm going to come to you quickly. I'm laying out the steps. I remember I was listening to Greg Glory share with us at the senior pastors conference one time about how to be an evangelist, you know, because a lot of us just aren't very good at it as pastors or teachers. See you next week. You know, you need Jesus. You know, we're not very good at it sometimes. It's not our gifting necessarily, but we want to do the work of evangelists. He goes, he goes, guys, here's what you got to do. If you're not gifted in evangelism, that's fine. You still have to do the work of evangelists. Let people know you're going to give them an opportunity at the end of the teaching to ask Jesus into their heart. Tell them ahead of time. Oh, that's good. So about halfway through, you say, now at the end of the teaching, I'm going to give you a chance to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior tonight. And I want you to think about that. It gives it time. Gives, oh, now they're thinking about, they're not going to be shocked and stunned by the invitation at the end of the teaching. Oh, it makes total sense, you know. So I try to do that sometimes. Sometimes I forget. Paul is giving them time to take this letter, to read it, maybe read it again, to let the Holy Spirit work, to bring conviction, to bring acceptance, to really be taught. To not study and read Paul's letter for the test. Ever do that? Study for the test and not for life? Very dangerous thing. No, to study for life. To understand this text for life, not just for the test. I want to pass the test when Paul gets here. No, I want to get this in my heart. I want to understand it. It's a big difference. So, this spiritual warfare he speaks of in Ephesians 6 Starting in verse 10, this is the whole armor of God. It's a little bit long, but bear with me. Paul writes to the Ephesians, very much like he's writing here in chapter 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Think about these things as we go through them. Usually we go through them pretty quick. Principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness of this age. Think about what we're talking about here. You're, you're fighting demons. You're, you're, you're battling um, the effect of demons on others and the effect of demons around you. You're fighting principalities and powers and things that aren't seen. Things are happening all around you. And although it may have the appearance of just this is normally what takes place in the world, remember the world is marching to the beat of Satan. So when you see them marching and your conviction is, although you don't know why, I don't know why that is not right. Whatever it is, isn't right. I don't feel right about this. I have a check, we call it, in our spirit. You run with that. That's a, that's, the battle's begun. They think that they've covered it with the world and you can't see the darkness behind it. But because you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you get this sense. I don't have the knowledge or no, I'm not a doctor. And no, I don't have this, but something about this doesn't sit right with me. Spiritually speaking. And you wage war in your mind. You pray. You seek the Lord. You obey the Spirit. I don't have to know the details. He doesn't have to give me the insight to explain to anybody else. All I have to know is in my heart, the Holy Spirit is telling me no. And that's what I'm going to do is no. We walk in the Spirit because we battle, not against flesh and blood. It's not about about who we think it is. A lot of them are just puppets. They're just... I'm worried about the hand in the puppet. That's what's concerning to me. Who's running the mouth? Who's running the thing? And there's a lot of conspiracy theories. It's the Illuminati. It's this or that. Oh, no, it goes much deeper than those guys. It's a spiritual warfare. Who cares who the puppets are? It's the puppet master that we're concerned with. And they will hide it under layers and layers. We battle as Christians against not flesh and blood, but principalities against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Whoa. 
And I can't fight those things on my own. We have a rifle range at our house, out to 400 yards, and I enjoy that. That's only going to take care of physical things. Deer, you know, kamikaze deer that might come our way. I'm ready, kind of thing. But how do you, how do you shoot spiritual things? You don't. You can't. You pray. You walk wisely. You let him help you avoid the snares and the traps that are laid there for you. And they can't figure out how you're avoiding all the landmines that Satan's putting in your path, but there you are tiptoeing through the tulips. And it frustrates the spiritual things because you're walking in the Spirit. That's the only way to walk as a Christian. It's by the Spirit. Therefore, he says, since we know this, since the battle isn't against flesh and blood, take up the whole armor of God. Take up the AK-47 and your fragmentation grenade. And No. No, those won't take care of it. The armor that we have to wear to win We'll start off with the waste of truth. It's like a belt. Not only do we need to know the truth, but we have to tell the truth. Our lies will snare us just as well as other people's lies. It doesn't have to be somebody else's lie that you have to see through. It's your own. So we have to know the truth, and we have to tell the truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, I gravitate towards it. I want righteousness, I look for righteousness, I covet righteousness in my life, and I want to be a righteous person. But I also need the righteousness of Christ imputed to me. Now that's the first thing I put on, is God's righteousness, of course. But that doesn't mean I sin behind it. I want to be righteous behind the righteousness of Christ. I want to be holy for he's holy. And that protects us. The feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The good news. I want to be ready to tell people. And with that, I want to tell people. Oftentimes we know the gospel and we know what to say if we were ever asked. But oftentimes the asking needs to kind of start with us sometimes. And we're afraid to start that conversation with people. And therefore we never bring people to Jesus. Now, this isn't meant to be condemning at all. Um, and you don't need to raise your hand, obviously. This is a personal question that everybody asks themselves, but when was the last time you sat down and prayed with somebody to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Have you won a soul to Jesus Christ, ever? Have you ever told someone about Jesus and the gospel to the point where they've received him as their Lord and Savior and you prayed with them to receive Christ? We're called to that. That's what this is. Feet shot with the preparation of the gospel isn't a coloring page. Something we do. To be soul winners is what we're called to be, to, to, to spread the gospel over the world, you know. It's not to spread the gospel for the sake of spreading the gospel. It's to tell people how to get saved and lead them into the kingdom, not just to let them know there's a way. You know, no. You know, uh, Preach Jesus, and, and if all else fails, use words, is cute, very ineffective when you need to lead someone to Jesus Christ. Yes, you start off with kindness and compassion and grace and mercy and love and joy and all these things and be like Jesus to them, but eventually you have to say and talk to them about sin and about how they're in trouble and they need Jesus. And I can help you take you to Jesus. You know, that conversation has to take place. Yes, be like Christ, but also we have to open our mouths like he did as well. So that gospel, that feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace is very important. The shield of faith. I know what I believe. And I, because I know what I believe, it protects me. That's faith. God says this. I believe this. That's what faith is. Faith, um, well, there's unbelief and then there's faith. So when God says something in, in the Bible, and I believe it, now that's my faith, and that's the shield I carry in front of me. I can't have doubt as a shield. I can't hold the shield of doubt out. Well, I'm pretty sure I know the way, kind of. I know there's other options, though. It's working for me, though. And all of a sudden, you know, you're not, you're not there. You have to know what you believe. And you have to 
understand it and be able to articulate it. And that's the shield that you can put in front of you because as the lies come your way, well, yeah, but what about millions and billions of years? And yeah, and what about starlight? And yeah, and what about, I need to know these answers and have my shield of faith up. It protects me because without it, I'm exposed to doubt and things thrown in my face that can cause me to be paralyzed in my faith and to not walk with the Lord anymore, which is what Paul is trying to bring across to Corinthians. You're, you're being paralyzed. And then also, because it's able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one, the lies and the, the doubt that comes away, take the helmet of salvation, something we put around our mind. I am saved. That's not something I'm battling with in my, in my heart or my daily life. I don't wonder if I'm saved anymore. I know I'm saved because by faith, Jesus Christ says I'm saved because I've trusted him. I've confessed him as my Lord. I've done everything he's told me to do, which is simply believe that what he did on the cross is sufficient for me. He who looks at the serpent on the pole will be healed of their deadly wound. As Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so must the son of man be lifted up. And all who look to the cross, whether they understand it or not, are healed of their sin. I've done that. My salvation is secure. I have no doubt that when I die, I'm going to heaven. It's a little interesting, the traveling from here to there. I don't know what that looks like. I'm a little nervous about what that, you know, oh, you just close your eyes and open your eyes there. That's what you say, but you ain't done it either. I don't know what that looks like, but I believe it. So I'm not battling that. I have that helmet of salvation on. I'm not wondering if I'm saved, because if you're wondering if you're saved, How in the world can you tell other people about salvation and have them convinced of their salvation? If I don't even know if I'm saved or not, but you need him. (laughs) You've got to have that helmet of salvation on. Wear it. Know it. Figure it out. Believe God's word. And then finally, the sword of the spirit, which is the only offensive part of this weaponry. Everything else is for you to protect, but the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Remember whose sword it is but you do have to handle it. The Holy Spirit in you holds the word of God in you and shares the word of God the way he wants to share it through you. It isn't some strange thing where there's just some magic sword in front of you whipping it around. No, you have to hold it and you have to use it, but under the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, it'll be used correctly. It'll cut between the joint and the marrow, between the soul and the spirit, discerning the hearts and the intents of man. The Word of God is a wonderful way of doing that. How many times have we ever sat in a teaching, me included, in other teachings, sometimes while I'm teaching myself, and been convicted by something that I was just thinking about or something I just did that way? It's like, did somebody tell God? Did somebody tell the pastor that I was thinking this way? That's just a little too close to home. That's a little uncomfortable for me. You know, was he eavesdropping? Was he in my house? No, that's the Holy Spirit using the word of God and discerning your heart and your intent and going to, and it's proof. It's one of those miraculous proofs that we always look for and hope for. How do I know God's real? Because I just heard a message that was so on point to what I was just thinking and nobody thought I was, nobody knew I was thinking of it. Wasn't it Nathaniel? Was it Nathaniel that was under that that was brought to Jesus, and there was no guile in him? Am I thinking of the right guy? Probably. You're all like, I don't know. You're the pastor. You're supposed to know. I think it was him. And Jesus said, "I saw you under the fig tree." Nobody saw me under the fig tree. I was under the fig tree by myself. He goes, "No, you were talking to somebody, right? Yeah, God. You know, yeah, I was there." Oh, see, I want those moments. And that's what happens with the word of God. When you share the word of God with somebody, because I don't know what's in my heart. I, 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 it's just here. I don't know you. You don't know me. But God told me to tell you, this is a verse I read last night in my quiet time, and I'm just supposed to share it with you tonight. No, I'm J.D. Dirks. I did. Okay. And here's what it says. Da, 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 da. And to watch their face. I was just praying last night, asking God to give me an answer. Thank you for obeying. Thank you for coming up to me and sharing what the Holy Spirit put on your heart. Thank you for confirming that there's really a God because nobody knew I prayed that prayer last night, but because he heard me 
and you heard him, and you made that connection, the full loop has taken place, and now I know there's a God. How many opportunities like that do we miss? Oh, man, I'm telling you. It's worth being wrong. I say that because sometimes you can get excited and do the wrong thing and say the wrong thing. You're like, that's my biggest fear. I'm going to go up to them, and they're going to look at me and say, get away from me, you crazy man. I knew it. I knew it. That wasn't God or whatever. That might happen. I don't know. You get excited sometimes. But I've, happened, I've had it happen the other way way too many times. To not ever want to do it again, I got to do it all the time. First time I heard this chapter, and you know the story, and I've told you this before, probably. Young, young believer, I mean, barely saved. And I know you're saved, and you're completely saved once you're saved. I get that. But you know what I mean. Like barely walking with the Lord after you're saved. Just barely. And we had this wonderful pastor and this wonderful, I mean, it was a revival on our, on our, on our base. There's no other way to describe it. And we were going over something like this and talking about spiritual warfare and how you just got to be led by the Spirit. And when he tells you to say something, say something that's similar to this verse in this chapter. And it was that day I was walking along the flight line. And there was a guy loading bombs, putting them up, getting ready for the next sortie that was going out. He had his helmet on and the whole gear. And, you know, he was important and I was a scrub, you know. And I'm looking through the fence at him. And God's saying, you need to, you need to tell him that Jesus loves him. And, and oh, yeah. Sure, right. And it just would not leave me alone. It was just one of those moments where God, it was one of those moments that it had to happen. And he wasn't going to let it slip. It wasn't one of those times where he says, well, you can do it or you don't have to do it. There's no way I was taking another step. I couldn't do it. You've got to tell him. So I'm yelling at this guy and he's got, you know, the jet noise. You know, he's going, what? He's pointing. I say, you know, trying to get his attention. He comes over, he goes, what? So he's already irritated. You know how this goes. What? You know, when someone does that to you, you're like, I'd rather even tell you now. Because I, I, I think you're mad, you know, kind of thing. He was not happy. What? I said, God told me to tell you Jesus loves you. It's important to me because it was the first time it ever happened to me. And he took him off. He says, what? I said, Jesus loves you. God told me to tell you that. Because you're the third person today to stop me and tell me that. You need Jesus, you know. <laughs> Yee. Oh, I was, I was that far off the ground the rest of the day. I mean, I was just floating around saying, does anybody else need to know about Jesus today? <laughs> I mean, I was so on fire. I mean, I, I, I was Peter at that. I was like, yes, Lord, I hear you, you know. I was ready to go into command quarters, you know. Does anybody here need Jesus today? I'll baptize you right now, kind of thing. Oh, I was on fire. Oh. You don't want to miss those moments. You got to do it. So he says that. Now, Titus chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works and doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. Carry your life in such a way, walk in such a way, that if they want to say something about you, it's got to be a lie. Now, I, I tie that into this section because Paul carries himself in such a way that although he's being accused of many things by these other teachers that have tried to usurp his authority and take his place in the Corinthian church, everything they're saying is wrong or it's petty or it's superficial. And so Paul has done Titus what Paul writes to Titus, he does. Carry yourself in such a way that if they say something evil about you, they may be ashamed of it and embarrassed by it. Verse 7, back in Corinthians 10. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is in Christ, even so we are Christ. Very simple truth. Well, I know Jesus. Okay, well, don't forget that I do too. 
Yeah, but I'm called by Christ. Don't forget that I am too. Don't forget that we're going to see each other in heaven. I think we forget that sometimes. Don't forget that we're going to stand beside each other for eternity in heaven. Before you get too excited or angry or become an opponent of mine, remember, we're going to be in heaven someday together. So convince yourself. If you're looking at the outward appearance, my hooked nose, my squinty eyes, my small stature, my weak, squeaky little voice, remember I'm Christ just as much as you are. For even if I should boast some, somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Authority. Well, this is a good time to teach this. Hebrews 13.7, Hebrews 13.17. These two verses. We don't know who the writer of Hebrews is, but boy, it sounds an awful lot like Paul. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. And then in 17, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you, which is exactly what Paul's talking about here. That's why I know I believe personally that Paul wrote Hebrews. He's trying to explain to them, look, I've been given authority by Christ, not by myself. I can't do this on my own, nor can I take this authority. But he's given me this to edify you, not to destroy you. I don't have that kind of power, that kind of authority. That's not what God's given this to me for. But to edify you, to build you up. I'm here to be your teacher, to train you up in the ways of the Lord, so you be a strong, solid on fire believer, you know? And so he writes that to the Hebrews. Don't forget those, those folks. They have forgotten Paul, who he is, who sent him, what authority he walks under, you know? It's very important. Lest I seem to terrify you by letters, and here's the quote from the naysayers that are in the crowd, For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Now that's got to make everybody uncomfortable because they read these letters to the church. Paul wrote a letter. We're going to be reading it to us next Saturday. Everybody come. Let's read Paul's letter together. And so he quotes somebody in the crowd and they got to be like, I don't know who he's talking about. You know, how do you hear that? Who told him I said that? Everybody knows in the crowd at the Corinthian church who said his letters, they're weighty and powerful, big words, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. He says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be in deed when we are present. That sounds like a threat. I don't think he's going to get physical, but he says, "You you think I'm afraid to say this to your face? You think that I only write these things in letters? You don't think I'll look you right in the eye and say you need to repent of your sins? I'm coming. I appreciate Paul. Boldness. And so the guy who ever said that, whoever got quoted there, is probably like, I, I've got to go on a trip. <laughs> you know, <laughs> a little vacation time. When's Paul supposed to be here? I think I'll be out of town. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. God, that was a great teaching. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was good, wasn't it? It was really good, you know. And they compare themselves to each other. How many people are at your church? How big is your... Do you have a radio station? Do you have a 15-passenger van? Do you have a worship team? Do you have a building? You know, you know comparing all the time. He says, no, I don't want to class myself or compare myself like they do. I don't want to even get into that crowd. They measure themselves by themselves. No, the only measuring rod we have is Jesus Christ. That's our measuring rod. And Paul's full aware of that. I think that's what bothers him the most about this. So, I don't want to do that. I don't want to measure myself by we, however, will not boast beyond measure but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. You are in our sphere of ministry. We planted the church, he says. To think that I don't have authority here is ridiculous. This is part of my sphere. Now, I'm not a part of that sphere or that sphere. That's somebody else's. I do not build upon another man's foundation, he says, although others do, he says. I'm only talking about the things I've started, the churches that I planted. 
Certainly, that's my sphere. But we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in another man's labors, like the guys he quoted earlier, you guys came in after us, you're building upon our foundation, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. In Romans chapter 15, 20, he says the same thing a little bit differently. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. Paul says, that's how I've always lived my life. Wait, there's a church there? They've already heard the gospel? Well, they don't need me. I'm going someplace else. I'm going to another location. So where they haven't heard. That's why he'd always ask. You go in the synagogues. Have you heard? Heard what? Oh, Good. Perfect place. Verse 17. This is where we close tonight. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. That's the measuring rod. That's who we want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not from each other, but from God himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for Paul's boldness for his love for the Corinthian church, not willing to let them slip down the slope of backsliding, but to stop and to do whatever he can to build them up, to edify them, to help them continue with you, to go to another level, to grow, to mature. We thank you for that heart that he has. We pray for the same heart. We pray to walk in the spirit, to open our mouths, to share Christ with people, to share the gospel, to share the good news, to share our testimony with what you've done with our lives, to find spheres, that you want us to be a part of, to start, whether that's in our workplace maybe, or at school, or our friends, or our family, that we would begin our preaching ministry, our sharing ministry, our teaching ministry with those who listen, anybody. We pray that you bring us opportunities like that this week, divine appointments, like one of the stories that we shared tonight. We pray for many, many more of those in our life. Opportunities to open our mouths to pick up our cross and follow you and to share the gospel, not knowing whether it'll be received or not, but because it's the right thing to do, because it's truth. Help us to do that, Lord, in a loving and gracious and merciful way. By your spirit, help us to use your word this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need prayer before you go, come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, have have an exciting week with the Lord. I really do. I hope you have one.